Captain. Let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. Get down! With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19. All new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. This is Kincaid and Breckenridge, the Highlights podcast. We spent some time today discussing uh, the, the the ramifications and the dangerous precedent that may be set here uh, with the court ruling in Ontario that Vice News must now produce some of its uh, source materials uh, and hand them over to the RCMP as they pertain to an interview with a known terrorist, Farah Sheridan. We also talked about Canadian hockey teams, the fact that none of them will be making the playoffs, whether that matters to Canadian fans, and conversely, whether it affects how much we're watching uh, hockey on television uh, ratings uh, for, for NHL games in, in Canada have been uh, down, actually, considerably over the last year or so. Uh, you can listen to Kincaid and Breckenridge. We are on weekdays, 9.30 to 12.30 on News Talk 770. I'm Roger. That's Rob. This is going to be a a half hour. We're going to peer into a recent decision out in Ontario where uh, a vice news journalist has been ordered to uh, comply with the RCMP request, a demand. The RCMP basically uh, turning the screws on a a vice news reporter and saying, hey, look, give us what you got. Well, and they've gone to court. I mean, initially it was a court-granted production order. Uh, Now an Ontario court has, has upheld that essentially arguing that uh, Vice News reporter Ben Mackich must hand over all communications between him and Ferris Sheardan. Now, Ferris Sheardan, uh, as, as people uh, in these parts probably remember, he's from Calgary, left in uh, 2014, we figure, to, to go to Iraq and, and Syria and, and fight alongside ISIS. He's uh, appeared in some, some ISIS videos, and uh, Ben Mackage was able to, to get in touch with him and, and speak to him and did a story about him. Uh, they turned that into uh, an interview. The CEO of Vice, Shane Smith, uh, actually did an on-camera interview via Skype or satellite with, uh, with Farrah Sheardan. And in, in that interview, you know, he talks about how there's a number of brothers in, uh, in, in the U.S. or in New York, he mentions, that are ready to, to carry out operations and, and even says that, that Canada is going to get theirs uh, at some point. So issuing threats. And, and some of what he said in that interview did form the basis of, of the charges against him. I mean, the interview speaks for itself. I don't know why, why the RCMP would need the interview because we can all see it and see what he said. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, they believe that maybe there, there's more to be learned by seizing all of this and it's a question as to whether journalists are there to to act essentially as agents of the police to to gather information and then allow police that that shortcut to that information so yeah i mean well put and i I wonder if the rcmp are implying that there's something in the information that the journalist may not know he has do you know what i mean some sort of metadata or something to that effect and it's it's it, it it's this it's this uh, intersection of, of this estate, right? I mean, the media is there to keep uh, the courts, to keep the government, to keep the, the law accountable. And when the courts and the law have influence over the media, then perhaps we have a little bit of an issue. This could set a dangerous precedent. And I think that it, it bears discussion about exactly what that precedent is. Let's bring our guest into the conversation here. This is Nick Taylor Basie. He is president of the Canadian Association of Journalists, and they've taken a, a strong position on this issue. Nick, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. 
Thanks for having me. Uh, so disappointing uh, ruling today? Absolutely, it's a it's a disappointing ruling. I mean, we we're not alone in in in, in saying this. Uh, mm-hmm. Obviously, Vice News has said this, and argued this in court, and Canadian Journals for Free Expression have said this. Uh, uh, there's a sort of a chorus behind this this message that uh, journalists are are not or should not be uh, a branch of law enforcement. Uh, the, the independence of our work is sort of vital to our work in the public interest, and uh, courts, if 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 they're allowed to. To order us to to go over, you know, sort of any any documents that that may seem germane to any ongoing investigation, uh, it, it really uh, well not only does it threaten our freedom to do our work independently, but it also may scare off uh, sources who who otherwise w- would have come to us uh, to 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 tell us, you know, something that that may be in the public interest for us to get out there, but but want to do it uh, with some assurances that they can remain anonymous. Right. So, Nick, let, let's speak to the specifics of this instance before we, you know, discuss this matter uh, sure. more, more broadly. But, I mean, we're not dealing with, like, a disgraced uh, media personality here, or we're not dealing with, uh, like, sort of a, some corporate uh, ne'er-do-wells who, uh, you know, arranged some sort of a, a, a shady stock deal. I mean, this is an interest in the interest of national security. So there are probably a lot of Canadians who are quite sympathetic with the RCMP and the court's uh, decision on this. Uh, they may be, um, and 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 I can understand that, uh, particularly given the. Yeah, I mean, this is a this is a troubling time uh, for you know sort of it's a, it's a sensitive time anyway sure. around the world as 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 we all sort of grapple with uh, with threats of terrorist attacks and things of that nature. Um, so there 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 may be public support if if there was some poll done for the RCMP's demand here. Um, but I would, that wouldn't affect the, the, I think, the principle of the matter, uh, and it, so it, it may end up being an unpopular position in this instance. But uh, uh, I, you know, wouldn't wouldn't move us in the direction of of, of setting or or, or uh, submitting to some sort of new precedent. Yeah, this case is interesting because the the, the charges did arise from from the reporting. Uh, there, there's apparently some screen captures of, of the chats that the RCMP are interested in. The judge even said the screen captures are a copy of the actual electronic messages that Sheridan placed on Mr. Mack's computer. They're highly reliable evidence that do not require a second-hand interpretation. Because Vice is saying, look, everything that, that's out there that's of public interest, we put out there. Uh, and there's enough for the police to go on in terms of what we've released and what we published as a story that this is tantamount to, to a fishing expedition on their part. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I haven't spoken with people inside Vice about this, but I did note that they, uh, they made that point. And I sort of stand, you know, I stand behind Vice when they, when they say that anything uh, that's in the public interest, uh, they've reported um, and, and that's that's so where it ends for us. <laughs> because there, we, there there can be instances where you know if it's relevant to to a criminal investigation that that you know there there are going to be times when when journalists are going to have to uh, share something with the police, right? Sure. But we need sure. to be careful about letting the police or the courts decide. Well, certainly the police anyway. When when those instances are. Yeah, I mean, we will we will allow, we will be loud every time this sort of request is made, um, and because we what we're worried about is is some sort of precedent that that leads to a slippery slope, right? I mean, if 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 a journalist uh, were to say, okay, well, you know what, in this one particular instance, uh, uh, this this uh, fine, you know, <laughs> have uh, have my 
sources identity or have uh, have my notes. Uh, uh, it, it, I mean, that endangers another journalist who may. I'm, I'm, and first of all, I'm not really aware of any journalist who would come to that hypothetical conclusion. But but were they to do that, it would it would endanger other journalists' uh, uh, independence in in other in you know in other separate cases when uh, when a, when law enforcement or a court sort of says, well, this has happened before, and uh, and and and. and that uses a previous case as precedent for the next. I mean, it's just that we don't we don't we don't like inviting that slippery slope. That's for certain. Um, and, uh, and 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 again, that's sort of where it ends for us. Right. Well, what about the judgment of the journalist in this case, though? Because certainly, if if the individual felt that he'd you know come into contact with some information that that the RCMP should act upon in the interest of national security, would he then have a, a duty? Uh, both as a journalist and as a Canadian, to, to turn that information over to the RCMP? Essentially, when should a journalist call the cops? That's a good question. Um, you know, and I would actually, I'd love to hear what Ben McCooch, uh, I'd love to hear his personal response to that, because he's obviously had to grapple grapple with these issues himself uh, as, as he's gone through his own reporting here. Um, uh, but what I would say is that he, he and, and Vice News are are going about their their work, their reporting news in the public interest. Uh, it's not their it's not their duty uh, to to sort of have one eye on on what what may be useful to law enforcement as, as sort of like acting as a you know a stringer for the police. It's just not that's not how we go about our work, and it's not how. Uh, I, again, I think it's it's not what we should be expected to do. Um, I mean, uh, it's up to any citizen who happens to be a journalist to to contact police if they if they see. Uh, something illegal happening, or aware of some, you know, but but uh, but I don't think it should be incumbent upon us, right? To, uh, but but it goes to the argument that Ben McCooch is making in that, and that Rob outlined earlier is that look, everything that the RCMP could possibly use from these materials is stuff that we published. We haven't held stuff back in the interest of protecting the individual who is the subject of the story. So it's, right. it's, it sort of seems to me like. Like that's that's the the, the full argument. Having my notepad's not going to get you any closer to it. Yeah, but then I guess you know the counter to that would be well, well then, then it's no big deal then, and yeah. hand it over. Yeah. So Nick, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, go yeah ahead. sorry, sorry. On. No, no, you go ahead, Nick. Do you have something to add to that? No, not really. No, I was just. I mean, it's uh, if uh, I, I trust the reporter. He says there's there's nothing to to hand over that the police aren't, aren't already aware of, don't already know about. So by handing it over, he's He's, he's inviting this, you know, this dangerous precedent. Right. And the danger of that precedent is, is I think, that what we most need to focus on right now. Because for all Canadians who feel that, look, it's a scary time. Terrorism is rampant. We know we've got radicalized people here at home. Vice News should be most cooperative with the RCMP here. And they're probably quite stunned that uh, the courts had to get involved. Now, I, I think you're going to read that comment on a lot of newspaper websites that are publishing the story, ironically enough. But... The point is the precedent, and the precedent is is most important to consider for next time something like this happens. But it doesn't have to be in the interest of national security. What is the effect of the chill that this ultimately really puts on on the media and their ability to to you know get stories, get scoops? Yeah, well, it's I mean it's a chill in the media, I, I, I guess, but but it's it's more a chill on on sources who may come to the media uh, with with a story that's in the public interest, but but. But it may threaten, and you know, if they're whistleblowers or if they're any 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 manner of people who have stories that are in the public interest, but but they they'd rather remain anonymous. You know, um, uh, it 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 
if, if this becomes a, sort of an expectation that reporters are going to have to hand over their notes, then who's going to come talk to a reporter when they know that the reporter is, is sort of toothless when they guarantee confidentiality? You know, I mean, if, 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 if a journalist makes that guarantee, uh, which, which journalists do make, uh, how can if it reaches a point where, they, where that just means nothing, then, then who's going to talk to the, that person, you know, unless it's about something that's fairly inconsequential? Um, that, that's, that's the danger. Um, you know, we tell a lot of stories with a lot of anonymous sources, and uh, the, the conversation about when it's appropriate to use an anonymous source and when it's not is, is an ongoing conversation in every newsroom whenever, whenever that happens. But that's a conversation that should happen in newsrooms, and it should happen between journalists and sources. It, it, it shouldn't happen with the sort of law enforcement uh, watching over us, you know, um, and or at least having the ability to, to to just walk right in and join the conversation. That's 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 a scary thing. And we had a case uh, in 2004 involving an Ottawa citizen reporter who'd done some reporting yeah. on the Mira Rar case. It was uh, Juliette O'Neill. Uh, the RCMP had raided her, her home, I believe. Uh, they, they seized files and, and her computer, if, uh, if I'm not mistaken. But ultimately, the court sided with O'Neill, didn't they? They did, yeah. Um, uh, journalists don't always win cases like this. We, uh, we lost a, a case at the Supreme Court involving investigative reporter Andrew McIntosh uh, in 2010. Um, when he was when he was asked by by courts to uh, to hand over documents that that would reveal a confidential source, we lost that that case. Um, it, it ended up sort of amounting to nothing. But um, when I say we, too, I mean sort of journalists. The CHA supported that that effort on behalf of uh, Andrew McIntosh in the Post. But Juliet O'Neill was a case where um, where she was simply wronged. I mean, she was she was the RCMP raided her home, uh, and 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 it was. Uh, it, 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 it was beyond strong-arming a journalist. I mean, it was entering a journalist's home and, and, and taking things. It just that um, that was that was beyond the pale. And, and she did end up. I mean, there was a, a quite a public public outcry, and she was she was vindicated in that case. Okay, so the the court then ruling today that that media freedom is not absolute. But is this the end of the battle? Do you think, or does this go uh, does this go up higher? Because this was an Ontario court that made the decision, right? Yeah, we'll see. I mean, vice. Uh, has in their own reporting reserved the I guess the the right. Well, they of course they reserved the right, but they they've alluded to possibly appealing this. So we'll see if we'll see how you know how far they take it. Indeed, we will. Nick, thanks for the input on this. Appreciate you making some time for us here. Thanks so much for having me. All right, that's Nick Taylor. Vasey is uh, president of the Canadian Association of Journalists. So they've taken the side of uh, Vice News in this case. Uh, from their own press release back in November, when we first heard about this case, they they say journalists aren't an on-call branch of law enforcement. Uh, that every time police inappropriately interrupt a journalist work, they pose a direct affront to freedom of the press. I guess the courts are going to take these on a case-by-case basis. And so far, at least this judge has decided that, you know, the RCMP have have made a reasonable request here. But, uh, you know, Vice does have the option uh, of appealing. Yeah, and I kind of wonder how elastic the term reasonable is uh, and, the pre- and the precedent that it sets going down the track. I mean, what would the next reasonable request look like? Let's take a pause here, let that sink in, and we'll, we'll discuss this further after a quick break. Uh, 974-8255, what, what's your reaction to this? We know this isn't a ruling that's had a lot of front-page uh, press, for example, but it is a decision that, that uh, impacts the way uh, information is collected and, and distributed to the Canadian public through the media. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge. This is News Talk 770.
All right, Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. So try to understand, I guess, at one level, what it is the RCMP want here, what they think they need that they don't already have. And then, of course, there's the question about the precedent that this kind of thing sets. So I, I go back, and, and so the story advice today makes reference again to those the screen captures of the chats. What, what is it that would be there that they would need? Obviously, what... Sheerden is saying in the interview that that Vice aired was enough for the RCMP to lay charges against him. So if they were confident in laying the charge in the first place without having all of those materials, why is it insufficient now to go forward on that basis? And and don't we have enough to know that this guy is Ferris Sheerden? He's Canadian. He's with ISIS. There, there, there's no secret about it all, so I'm, I am puzzled by it. Yeah, they've got him on, on video saying, Canadians at home shall face the brunt of the retaliation. If you are in the Crusader, or if you are in this Crusader alliance against Islam and Muslims, you shall see your streets filled with blood. That's the quote that, that Ben Markwich, um cited in, in this piece back in October of 2014. So and presumably the RCMP laid the charges in response to what was reported in the media, which is fine and well. I fail to see how how the, the, the nation is served by the RCMP getting this information. Are they going to get notes and, and, and materials from, from Vice News from a year and a half ago that they'll be able to just open up and go, oh, aha, and then the following day we'll find out that Farah Sheridan has been apprehended and that we are no longer uh, in any sort of danger? And the reason I ask the question that way is because I feel that if the courts can intervene on the media in this way, then I think that, that the RCMP should also have to follow up and say, hey, here's what we got out of that. Here's why it was so important, so that we can see the, the fruit that this tree bears. Explain that to Canadians, you mean. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, why not? I'd say this is why we need that information. Because I, I don't know if this is about finding Sheridan or building the case against Sheridan. It seems to be more the latter. But if there were some digital breadcrumbs that the RCMP thought could lead them to Sheerden. Maybe people would look at it differently. But if they're just looking for the screen captures of messages to prove that it was Sheerden saying these things as though we didn't already know that because we see him on video doing so, that, that seems a little more uh, tenuous, shall we say. Does it remind you at all of Apple versus uh, FBI? Apple versus the government? Well, I mean, yeah, there's some parallels, I think. Because that's the concern. I mean, that's the same level of concern that I have in in all of this. The idea that Apple would uh, be seen as defending two terrorists is is the wrong way to frame the argument. I'm with most Canadians, I think, in that if if Ben Makuch, uh, the Vice News reporter, actually had something that would end a threat to our country, then he he would have a moral obligation to turn that over. I, a, I don't believe he does because he hasn't done that. Uh, and B, I don't think that the RCMP, uh, the, the law enforcement, should be allowed to use the courts to go and pressure the media or any other uh, entity, for that matter, uh, into into um, doing their work for them. Yeah, remember there were at least two journalists who, who interviewed bin Laden prior to 9-11. One of them was uh, Peter Bergen. Mm-hmm. The CNN and the other was a uh, British journalist whose name escapes me at the moment. Um, was it he, Michael Jackson? And I mean that seriously. No, I don't think it was. 
It might have been Robert Fisk, but I'm, I, I could be wrong on that. Uh, nonetheless, I, I don't recall either the American or the British government uh, arresting those journalists, subpoenaing, uh, subpoenaing those journalists, demanding that they hand over their notes. Because obviously there were people who set up that interview, would have helped him get to that interview. He would have taken notes at that interview. And I'm sure law enforcement, I'm sure the FBI, the CIA, they, they were all very interested in, in seeing and reading about that interview with Osama bin Laden, someone who was already wanted by the United States. But they didn't go after him. So that's why I find unique about this is essentially the same thing, isn't it? That a journalist managed to arrange an interview with someone who, for all intents and purposes, I suppose we can say is a terrorist. And yet the RCMP are responding this way. So I, I do think, I, I think that's a valid point you make, that, that the RCMP should explain this. Because I think should, Canadians should be concerned because uh, freedom of the press doesn't just matter to journalists. It, it obviously is of importance to all Canadians. So if there's a potential threat to that, uh, the onus is on, on the state to, to justify it and say, look, we recognize and appreciate and support freedom of the press. This case is a rare exception, and here's why. Because I'm, I'm not seeing that. Uh, Robert Fisk twice, once in 1993 and again in 1997. And uh, for CNN, Peter Arnett interviewed bin Laden in March 1997 after bin Laden had declared jihad on the United States. Peter Arnett or Peter Bergen? Peter Arnett. Is it really? Mm -hmm. Unless this great resource of information Mm. called Wikipedia is uh, lying to me in this case. So I just, I I wonder if Canadians are prepared then to give that away. Because you're right. We we seem to like our constitutional freedoms. We seem to like uh, uh, certain freedoms that were afforded to Canadians and are irrevocable according to the Charter of Rights and Freedoms in the same way that Americans like their constitutional freedoms. Uh, Until, however, they are tested and the convenient uh, response um, goes against it. Right? See, Peter Bergen also interviewed. Isn't that funny that Peter Arnett and Peter Bergen both interviewed Osama bin Laden? Weren't they part of that great British comedy duo, the, the two Peters, <laughs> by the way? Okay. Or is that somebody else? No, but like, do you know what I mean? You, you, that that we, we have to basically decide, hey, do you like these laws? Do you like these freedoms? Do you like this constitution? As it is, as it stands, without, be, without trying to interpret it in, in the context of any event that's occurring. And if we say, yeah, that's what we want, that's what we like then we can't just suddenly have this situation come up and go, ah, well, you know, I hadn't considered, uh, what, you know, how I would feel about a journalist getting a, an interview with a terrorist. Yeah, now, now I'd like to throw the constitutional freedoms that we've created in this country out the window. And we do this a lot. We did this with the Gian Gomeshi thing last week, where he basically said, no, I, I think it's good to have a presumption of innocence, the burden of proof on the state, and a fair trial. Well, unless it happens to be a, a you know a guy that we deem a pig who uh, uh, is accused of sexually assaulting some women, in which case we'd rather have not a fair trial, no burden of proof on the state, and uh, no presumption of innocence. Someone texts to say, I don't get it. If I had something that would help the police, I would give it. And I don't know that the journalists would disagree with that. Um, you know, someone like Ferris Sheardon is not going to put all of his trust in Vice News to say, hey, guys, don't tell the cops, but this is where I'm hiding out. Okay, but just keep that a secret. Uh, look, I, I think Ben uh, Makuch had a, an address for Farrah Sheardon. Mm-hmm. He would probably hand that over. Yeah, I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. And that's the point that I think we, we keep coming back to in this. If he had some material evidence that the police could use, it probably would not be an issue. You know, when, when we ask our guest, Nick Taylor Vasey, about, you know, when should journalists call the cops? It is a tough question. But if somebody phoned up our newsroom to say, I'm going to murder so-and-so at this address, 
we wouldn't just write the story. Here's our big and scoop. And then wait yeah. for the deadline, right, to, yeah. to pass. We would act upon that threat. And so, look, if there was a threat here to be assessed by the information, there's pretty much no doubt in my mind that the journalist would 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 mor- do the moral the, the morally correct thing. But that's not the case here. All right. We got a break for the 1030 News. When we come back, we're going to talk about hockey. Uh, we're going to talk about Canadian NHL teams not making the playoffs and uh, talk about Canadian broadcasters and their ratings woes. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. Well, I can attest to this, Roger, as the, the father of a young lad who roots for the Pittsburgh Penguins. I'm well aware that in the Eastern Conference of the NHL, very tight and exciting playoff race. Uh, but last night, uh, one less team in the, uh, in the hunt. I don't know that they really were, but last night the Ottawa Citizen, uh, Senators were mathematically eliminated from postseason contention. You know, you nearly said the Ottawa Citizens. And I thought that yeah, would be that, that would have been a, ironic. That, that might be the lamest name for a sports franchise anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> it's the citizens. You know, it was nineteen fifteen, the Vancouver Millionaires beat the Ottawa Senators for the Stanley Cup. Was that a challenge cup back in that time, by the way, or was it uh, a league play? I think it was a challenge cup still. Yes, there were different leagues. Right. <laughs> um so no Canadian teams in the playoffs then. And you yeah, know they were the last hope, I guess, if you if that Sort of thing matters to you. The, the, for a while there, they were the Obi-Wan Kenobi of the NHL. Is that what you're just basically saying? Yeah, more or less. Um, I am the father of, of, of nothing that likes hockey, but I still uh, have noticed that hockey ratings are uh, down this, uh, not yeah. just this year, but kind of since uh, Rogers took things over. And, I, and I've been wondering, why is that? I thought that this big private corporation with all sorts of different screens and all sorts of different resources that they could throw at the hockey product was going to make it just a gigantic hockey fantasy land for Canadian fans of the sport that's, uh, what is it, sport come religion? How's that? But that's just not been the case. It hasn't materialized. Well, and it may, but it, it is somewhat surprising that... Just looking at recently when it was CBC and to now and under Rogers, there there seems to be a considerable drop off in terms of the number of people watching. So, you know, you can talk about how the nature of television has changed, uh, maybe fewer people with cable, people watching Netflix and streaming. But, you know, from 2014 to 2015, was there necessarily a dramatic change? So, yeah, so something's going on, as you say, not having Canadian teams in the playoffs. It's not going to help the ratings. Uh, Chris uh, Zelkovich is a freelance sports journalist, contributor to Yahoo Canada Sports. Chris, thanks for joining us here. Yeah, well, hey, glad to be here. Um, I guess it's the first time I think I read today since 1970 that there's been no Canadian team in the playoffs. So, yeah, it's, do you think it's significant? Oh, I mean, I, you know, from from hockey fans' perspective, yeah, it's significant because. Uh, Usually around this time of the year, you get a whole bunch of people who really don't watch hockey, don't care about hockey. Suddenly they get excited because the the Leafs or the Flames or the Canucks or the the hometown team is is in the playoffs. And the farther they go in the playoffs, the more people get excited about it. Well, that's not going to happen this year. There'll there'll be no reason to get excited, uh, you know, unless uh, unless your uh, your your nephew is playing for the uh, Anaheim Ducks. <laughs> <laughs> Odds are you're not going to really have much stake in the game. Uh, 
So, yeah, I mean, it's uh, for hockey fans, it's not great. Uh, for Rogers, it's even worse. Right. So I think that's a pretty general uh, assessment of the situation. But I, I wonder how that applies to just the Stanley Cup finals. Can we expect to still see uh, for the final series between uh, the Washington Capitals and whoever they defeat to hoist the cup, um, can we still expect to see, do you think, consistent numbers uh, from years gone by? Uh, well, actually, you probably will because um, we haven't had a Canadian team in the finals uh, for for a while. I can't remember when the last one was, but and usually when when a Canadian team does make it to the final, you you see some pretty good ratings, uh, like I mean four or five million a game kind of thing. But uh, that's happened so seldom uh, in recent years that uh, you know when it comes to the final, they probably aren't going to be drawing any fewer fans than they have uh, you know most springs. The big difference is in the other rounds where, uh, for example, last year uh, the Canadians and, um, goodness, was it the Senators? I can't remember. Anyway, I believe the right. Canadians and Senators yeah, I think yeah, so. yeah. Uh, played around. And, I mean, you were looking at uh, uh, numbers, and that was a, a second-round series. Or, sorry, no, okay. <laughs> <laughs> My, I, anyway, you saw numbers like 4 million a game. Uh, and then a minute the Canadian teams were knocked out, that was the end of it. Um, they, they dropped back down to about $2 million. So you're looking at a significant hit. Yeah, it's interesting because I'm, I'm of the opinion that it shouldn't matter, um, that, that the NHL is a team of, of 30 teams, and they're going to be teams you like and teams you don't like, but I don't know why it gets caught up in, in nationalism necessarily. I, mean, it's, I, I think it's also especially yeah. true that for Canadian fans, it's more than likely the teams you hate are also Canadian <laughs> hockey teams. Oh, yeah, quite easily. I mean, uh, you know, everybody seems to hate the Ottawa Senators for some reason, so having them in the playoffs is, is good, and everybody hates the Boston Bruins or loves them, so they're always good to have in the playoffs, too. But but what you lose, on, like a hardcore hockey fan will always watch, and that's the, the two million or so who will watch the Stanley Cup final between two American teams. They don't care. They're just hockey fans. But where you miss out on are all those people who have not watched a hockey game all year and suddenly they get caught up because the hometown team is doing something spectacular. Uh, it's on a playoff run. And that's how numbers grow from $2 million a game to 4 and $5 million. So that's, that's what it's going to affect. And it's the same with baseball. I mean, when the Blue Jays did what they did last year, you saw ratings you know, triple what they had been in the past uh, when only American teams were in the, uh, in the playoffs. So there is, it has not so much to do with American-Canadian as, as home team. Right. I mean, the Blue Jays are Canada's home team when it comes to baseball. Whereas, well, yeah. you know, you can't make that same argument with, say, the, the Toronto Maple Leafs. And by the way, I just want to toss in for those who are playing the home game here. It was the Canucks, the last Canadian team in the playoffs, and they uh, burned their city down after the Bruins beat them <laughs> in, in, in Game 7 there. Uh, but but uh, so ba- back to this point, though, right? I mean, how much does was Rogers banking on more than just the hardcore hockey fan tuning in and does the fact that the Toronto Maple Leafs, I'll just say it, the Maple Leafs have been a garbage hockey club since uh, they since this deal went through. Yeah. How much is that and, dragging down their bottom line? Oh, I think it's dragging it down huge. I mean, I don't think they were foolish enough to, to go into this deal, this, this $5 billion deal, um, assuming the Leafs would be in the playoffs every year. Um, but I think that, I mean, seeing that this is only the second time in 40 years that this has happened, uh, I don't think in their worst nightmares, uh, you know, did, did, uh, did they foresee a, a Canada-free uh, Stanley Cup playoff? 
Um, so, you know, and it's not just the playoffs. It's the rest of the season. I mean, numbers have, have dropped consistently since about Christmas, early January, as it appeared that most of these teams were going down the tubes. Um, and that, that's hurt, too, because, uh, you know, those, those are a situation where they would have promised advertisers a certain number, like we're going to get you 1.8 million viewers every Saturday night. Uh, if you pay this much for an ad, and they're not getting 1.8 million, they're getting more like 1.4 million. Well, somewhere along the line, they have to, uh, you know, give those uh, advertisers a rebate, uh, usually in the form of free advertising. Which, uh, the last I checked, they were not happy about uh, having to do. All right, well, tell me if I'm wrong because this is my sense that. Um, I, well, let me give you two hypotheticals. I, I think a, a Pittsburgh-Chicago Stanley Cup final would get higher ratings in Canada than a Winnipeg-Ottawa Stanley Cup final. Um, you know, I, 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 I think you're – it's a good point, but I don't think you're right because you would get the entire province of Manitoba would be watching. I mean, probably 80% of the people who – who have TVs would be watching that series, even if they didn't watch hockey all year. And the same thing in, in the Ottawa region. And then plus you'd get a few Canadians elsewhere who would be curious to see the possibility of, of the Stanley Cup finally coming home um, for the first time in, like, 20, uh, 24 years, 23 years. So, uh, you know, it, it would people do, uh, do get caught up in this. Uh, and the local markets... Uh, when, when you get to a Stanley Cup final or a World Series, play a huge role. I yeah, mean, you know, entire cities, just everybody's talking about it. NBC would that's, hate that, though. That's my oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's We talk about a Canada free playoff being Roger's worst nightmare. A Canada, yeah. an all-Canadian final is, is NBC's worst <laughs> exactly. nightmare. I like Especially you, Ottawa and Winnipeg. <laughs> you, you said Pittsburgh, Chicago, right, Rob? Yeah. So you did give Manitoba the Jonathan Taves factor anyway. Well, there's that. Example. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Chris, we want to put you on hold here because i got a question that, that, that kind of takes this out of the hockey realm but, but might okay. be, be more telling about uh, Canadian sports audiences uh, in general. So we'll continue this conversation with Chris Zelkowicz uh, when we come back. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. Hey, welcome back. I'm Roger. That's Rob. We call the show Kincaid and Breckenridge because our parents named us that. Uh, this is Chris Zelkovich. Uh, so, Chris, here's here's my question about that kind of takes us out of hockey because I'm of the mind that uh, TV ratings for sports are down like pretty generally. Uh, sport to sport yeah, to sport. You're, you're right about that. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, so except for the All Star Game, apparently the NBA All Star Game, I think was a big hit, wasn't it? Uh, not in Canada. Okay. <laughs> well, cool. um, yeah. But, it but, might have been in the U.S. So what does that say then about us? Like, are we just kind of turning off the TV in general when it comes to, to sports and, and maybe well, I, just following up somewhere else? I, I mean, I don't think so. I don't see any indication. You look in the stands. Uh, they're still full. People are still paying ridiculous prices for tickets. I think it's probably more that, that people aren't watching the games on TV. Uh, a lot of them are watching them somewhere else. Uh, somebody told me uh, last night or the, earlier this week, they watched a Raptors game on YouTube um, for free. Uh, I mean, I don't know how that happened, but apparently there's all kinds of pirated sites out there where you can watch, if you know how to negotiate your way around the uh, the Internet, you can watch a lot of this stuff without, without having to pay the cable companies anything. And I think you're seeing a lot of that. Um, 
I had a discussion with uh, one of Roger's people this morning, and he said they've been doing studies that have showed, particularly with young people, that they will do things like watch Breaking Bad Marathon on, on Netflix and have a, a, a sporting event on their, their phone or their uh, iPad if they have those, but they turn the sound down. Right. And once you turn the sound down, you don't get counted as part of the ratings because the sound is, is how the ratings uh, get registered. Right. Anyway, and they're watching in five- and ten-minute chunks, and they're tuning in for the last five minutes. They don't have any patience. <laughs> um, and I think that's what you're seeing, why the numbers are going down. I, I, I've yet to see a, a, a big drop in, in the interest, from what I can see anyway. Well, let me read a few of the text, and, and this sets up a question about whether this might be a factor. Uh, this one here says, fans are watching less because of George Strombolopoulos. This one says, I get frustrating <laughs> watching Rogers sports. The production quality is terrible. This one says, the panel is so freaking boring. Strombolopoulos doesn't know anything about hockey. So uh, these are all unprompted texts coming in. Yeah. It, it's, does any of it rest at the feet of, of Rogers? Um, well, I think to to an extent, yeah. Um, however, you have to take that all with a bit of a grain of salt. I mean, does, does, does anybody tune into a hockey game to watch the panel? I mean... Well, hang on the, a second here, Chris. You're talking <laughs> to the wrong guy here because I, I don't watch NFL football as much as I used right. to, but I always watch... Let me put it to you this way. I always watched Monday Night Football. Now mm-hmm. I don't. I'm far more likely to watch Sunday Night Football because... Because, because of the people? Yeah, yeah. because of the, the call. Al Michaels is the best. Yeah, no, and okay, that, that that certainly is a factor, and I think, uh, I mean, Rogers has admitted that they, uh, their first year round, they didn't uh, do things exactly uh, as well as they should have, and I think a lot of it had to do with, uh, you know, a rotating bunch of uh, talking heads on their panels that, you you know, you needed a program to keep track of who was who and, and you know, <laughs> biographies, like, who are these people? Right. Uh, and then, you know, with having so many games on so many different channels, uh, the faces would change from channel to channel. It was it was very confusing. Yeah. Um, so I think yeah, there 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 is a small um, uh, effect on that, but I still think it's the games. And when when your home team or your favorite team is is losing, is is you know, his biggest hope is to get the number one draft pick. In other words, finish as low as you possibly can. Now that's not nice, Chris. <laughs> Rob is right here. Okay, he's listening to you. <laughs> anyway, that's. That, I think that's still the biggest factor. All right. Well, we'll leave it at that, Chris. Thanks so much for your time today. Really appreciate okay. it. Okay. All right. You're very welcome. You take care. Chris Zelkovich is a freelance sports journalist, contributor to Yahoo Sports Canada. Writes a lot about the TV ratings of uh, of sports, particularly hockey in this country. Well, yeah. And, and, you know, the teams aren't doing well. People are less inclined to watch. And that's... That's what's happened this year. Obviously, the, the, all the Canadian teams have been lousy, bad enough to, to not make the playoffs. And you, you need people watching. And it comes down to uh, your hometown team. And how's your hometown team team doing? And uh, there's not been a lot to get excited about. I, I think we do have to consider, though, those other viewing uh, patterns, uh, viewing habits, rather, and ratings habits as well. Because, you know, uh, Chris mentioned there that, uh, you know, if you got the sound turned down on the game, then it can't measure the ratings. And that's some science that we don't need to get into here. But, um, but, but the way that those ratings are measured, I wonder if uh, there's enough opportunity to measure those ratings in like a pub environment, right, in a pub setting, so that people who aren't just going to sit in front of their TV quietly with their own cold one out of their fridge watching the game, but if they go out en masse and they're watching the game, uh, and, you know, the sound environment where they're at isn't such that they can rate it, then maybe they're not collecting an accurate count of all the eyeballs that are actually well, that's not on the new. screens.
That's not new. No, but it does explain why the different listening, ha- uh, excuse me, the different uh, viewing habits of people, and, and particularly that case where he says people are watching uh, Breaking Bad marathon, but they've got an eye on their cell phone that's following the game. Uh, again, because we're not talking about you know 1986 versus 2016. We're talking about 2013 and 2015, 2014 and 2015. Right. So I don't know that things changed all that dramatically. I, I think part of that's at play. But, you know, we were talking just recently about Canadian television and mm-hmm. what Canadians are watching. And when we were going through the Canadian weekly TV ratings, HockeyNet in Canada used to be near or at the top. Some weeks it's not even in the top 20 or top 30. Like, that's pretty shocking that that, that something that big right. and that iconic would, would have fallen off that dramatically. So. There's more going on here, and I'm not sure what it is. All right, we'll take a break right here. It's Kincaid and Breaking Ridge on News Talk 770.